0: Alrighty. Now you all know each other. I should introduce myself. My name's Jesse. I uh, am the worship pastor here, and I do some other adminy stuff around the office. Uh, It's great to be speaking to you about uh, what God is doing, uh, both uh, in the life of this church and in uh, the Bible. So uh, we're going to continue our series on Acts. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a cafe church last week, but a couple of weeks ago, Jim preached on how, as Peter and John went up to the temple, they were used by God for a miraculous healing of a lame man. And from that passage and that sermon, what I want us to hold on to and remember are these three things. First, that God did actually miraculously heal uh, that person. Secondly, that there really is no convincing argument that the availability of such healing power dried up with the apostles. You know, we're going to read from what's commonly known as the act of the apostles, but it should rightly be called the act of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is still here today and can minister in and through us. And third, that God, basically, to say that point again, can still and wants to still heal broken people today, here in East Fife. So in that passage, Peter, in, uh, in his ministry, he follows the pattern of his teacher, Jesus. He starts uh, with a healing, and then he explains what's going on. There's a show and tell, there's a constant peddling back and forth between uh, demonstration and explanation of what's going on. Last week, we looked at the healing. This week, we're going to look at the teaching that follows it. And I want to ask three questions of this passage, which is kind of how I approach uh, most of what I read in the Bible. First of all, what did it mean uh, to its original hearers? Secondly, what does it mean for everybody who is reading it ever since that time? And thirdly, does God have anything specific and uh, uh, particular to say to this church through the through the words of Scripture today for us right now? So. I've asked Maddie to come and uh, read this passage of scripture, so that you just get a little change of, uh, of, of voice. Uh, so, Maddie, if you would. It's on, it it? on the screen, but you can read it off there. If you want. It's up to you.
1: All right. While while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico and called called um, Solomon's portico. Utterly astonished, um, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, You Israelites, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate though he had decided to release him but you have rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have him a murder given to you and killed and you killed the author of life whom god raised from the dead to this we are witnesses and by faith in his name and his name itself has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through jesus has given his Him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he has foretold through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, uh, therefore, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that you may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal rest, uh, restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Mo- Moses said, the Lord your God will be raised up for you, um, your own people, a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you. And it will be the that everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be utterly rooted out of the people. And all the prophets, as many as spoken from Samuel and these days after him, also predicted these days. You are the descendants of all the prophets in the covenant of the God gave to your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and to the descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God raised up his servants, he sent him first to you, to, be, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways.
0: Oh man, I just, re- I just realized I've, I've snipped a bit off the end there, but uh, more I can pick that up next week. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so Peter's first reaction uh, as people swarmed towards him and John and this man formerly known as lame, as he's now walking and leaping and praising God, is this, why are you surprised? And then he goes on to give three reasons, or what I discern as three reasons, why they should be completely unsurprised at what they're seeing. By the way, if you're note takers, I've got a great selection of notes for you. I've got a nine-point sermon. Well, actually, I've got... uh, I've got three points, all of which have their own three points. so it might even be 12-point sermon, so there you go. Go for it. All right, so, so this, is, um, this is, why are you surprised? Reason, reason number one, why you should not be surprised. First of all, in verses 12 and 13, on face value, he's asking these questions. In the scriptures it says, he's saying, "Why do you wonder at this? Why are you staring at us as though it's anything uh, to do with our power or piety that this man is healed?" Those are the face value questions, but the language he's using them, he's using there forces them to also hear another question by calling them Israelites, by elaborate, but by elaborately calling God the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our ancestors. You know, that's a lot of words to say God. He's suggesting another question. He's suggesting this question. Do you not know God at all? You who should know him better than anybody. So reason number one that they shouldn't be astonished is that God has hardly kept himself a secret from Israel. God is mysterious, but he's not particularly secretive. If you know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have no reason to be surprised. And what's happened here is that people have suddenly realized that the God they believe in is actually real. And I genuinely empathize them. I don't know, it's it's one thing to say, I believe a thing is possible. It's another thing to actually witness it happening before your eyes. And at that point, you realize the internal contradiction that lives within you. I've always believed it, but I didn't believe it until I saw it. That's what I think is happening here. So reason number one, to not be surprised, they should know this God. Reason number two, In verse 15, Peter talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You shouldn't be surprised that this man, this lame man who you know can get up and walk because they used the name of the man who once was dead but now lives. This isn't a fanciful claim. This is witness testimony backed up by power. God raised Jesus from the dead and now he's raised this man to his feet. Thirdly, in verses 22 and 24, Peter tells them they shouldn't be surprised simply because from Moses to Samuel and every other prophet in between and since, everyone the Jews deemed as a genuine vessel of God's own words, you shouldn't be surprised because you've been told for centuries that this was going to happen. So basically, this proclamation from Peter is one great big told-you-so But he's not doing it to punish people and just rub their noses in failure. It's to told you so because Peter wants them to understand what they're seeing and what they've just seen in the context of what they already know. This stuff makes sense given what they already believe and know to be true. Even if they've made mistakes in how they've interpreted that knowledge and how they've acted upon that knowledge. It's not just a spiteful, told you so, because Peter gives them an out. In verses 17 onwards, Peter basically says this, You acted in ignorance of truth, even though you've no excuse to be ignorant. You listened to your teachers, who have even less excuse to be ignorant of these things. But it's not too late. For you or for your teachers. Yes, you acted in ignorance, but you're not going to be punished for your ignorance, unless you continue to ignore what God has done. Unless you now, knowing what is true, you choose ignorance. And the opposite of choosing ignorance, I think Peter says here, is to choose repentance, which literally means to change your mind. Given this new information, to change your mind and turn and face the living God. Stop choosing death. Start choosing life. In the words of uh, Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption, it's a simple choice. Get busy living or get busy dying. And then his friend Red later says, God damn right. Which I think is theologically pretty bang on. Uh, So the original heroes I believe would have heard this. You really should have seen this coming. But even though you didn't, It's not too late for you. You murdered the author and prince of life himself, but in power, in God's power, he rose from the dead, and in love, he still offers you life. So what are the principles that God is establishing in this teaching? Not just for the original hearers, but for everyone since then. I think it's, it hinges on this word, repent. So we need to talk about what repentance is. And more I about this a, a while back and absolutely brilliantly, but I want to dive specifically into what Peter says uh, here about repentance and what it leads to. So repentance is my second major headline, uh, my springboard for my second group of three points. Peter says that repentance leads to three things, all of which happily begin with an R. First of all, relationship. That is relationship with the living and loving God. The first result after repentance and turning towards God, Peter says, is our sins are blotted out. That basically means that our most fundamental relationship, the relationship between me and God, That relationship I should have before any connection I'm supposed to have with anyone or anything is now possible again, despite everything that has stood in the way. But before relationship must come repentance. Secondly, refreshing. The word uh, that's used here doesn't just convey the sense of refreshing as we normally think about it, you know, a cool drink on a hot day, um, you know, it's just a uh, relief from the heat. Um, it's also the other great R word, revival. In the sense of genuinely renewed life. And I, I love that. There's um, Marie and I watch a load of uh, uh, trashy medical dramas, you know, the sorts, sorts of things. And whenever there's a, a birth scene, you must know this, there's this... The, the director always seems to take delight in giving you this dramatic pause between the delivery of the infant and that first gasp of breath that is kind of evidenced by, by crying. There's always that, is it going to be okay? Is it going to be okay? And I think that's what's similar to what happens spiritually when we repent and we turn back to God. It's like we've come from a place of darkness and breathing underwater to a place of light where we can take our first gasp of real air, and it's a bit bit of a shock to the system. But when we repent, we're brought back into relationship through the blotting out of our sins, and we're refreshed, we're revived. The third R, and this is a double whammy, this is two R's, return and restoration. Jesus, at the beginning of Acts, ascends into heaven where he'll stay until some point in the future when he will return. And it's at that time that all things will be restored. Return and restoration. Peter has already here snuck in the theology of now and not yet. Jesus has come. Jesus is coming. We often pray in our ministry time. We often pray um, in, in the vineyard, come Holy Spirit, but our spirit's grown, come Lord Jesus. It's only when Jesus returns that we will see the world put to right. His power is available now, but it's not until he returns that we'll see restoration of all things. And I think it's completely pointless to speculate on when that might be since Jesus himself doesn't know. I believe tonight, actually, um, there's supposed to be a blood moon, a super wolf blood moon or something like that, and doubtless there will be people who are saying, it's time, and it's like, Jesus doesn't even know the time, silly <laughs> people. Um, anyway, where was I? Super wolf blood moon, there you go. Wolf moon because uh, it's January and then super because the moon is closer to the earth at this point. Then anyway, I'm, I'm, off, I'm off topic here. Um, what I find really interesting in this passage, though, is that our repentance seems to have some kind of impact on the timing of Jesus's return. Je- Peter actually says um, in the text, repent, dot, 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 so that the Lord may send the Christ appointed for you. That is namely Jesus Christ. But whether he's waiting for us or we're waiting for him, there is no doubt the call to repentance is clear and we should not delay. Repent so that relationship with God may be restored. Repent that he may refresh and revive us. Repent that he may return and restore all things. And that leads me to, to think about what God is saying to us today through this passage. And this is a bit trickier because it's based a little more on what I f- feel God is saying and felt God is saying as I studied this passage. And as I was studying it, I was struck by this, this reality, this message that God is saying, God has said for A long time through prophecy what he's going to do and I began to wonder what has he already told us he's gonna do so that we're not ignorant of it so that we might prepare for it so that we won't be surprised when we see it and apart from the big things we know about from the Bible like the return of Jesus and the end of the world there are things that God is still saying to his people prophetically he's he has not stopped speaking we need to weigh and judge what we hear carefully, judging it against the will and the personality of God as He has already revealed it through the Scriptures. But just as there's no compelling evidence that healing dried up with the first generation of Apostles, neither is there any compelling argument that prophecy is dried up either. Now, It doesn't take a prophet to tell you that the year of our Lord 2019 is going to be an unpredictable and an unsettled one. There is a storm coming, people, and it's not going to be much fun. It's already here. But what prophecy can and must do is to communicate God's reality into the events of the world, to regain some perspective there are three key ways that I believe God wants us to respond to these times, both as individuals and as a church family. I'm afraid they don't... Oh, hello. That was... Yeah, uh, three key ways. This is, this, is, um, this is point three or point uh, nine, if you're still counting. Um, three key ways that I believe God wants us to respond to this, uh, this time as individuals and as a church family. They don't start with the same letter, but they do have rhyming word endings, so here goes. We're to wait, consecrate, and celebrate. Thank you. (laughs) I believe that these three words are a prophecy for us today, but they're also three ways that we can all live prophetically, by which I mean we can live in a way that proclaims, declares God's truth, God's reality into our everyday situations. So let me briefly unpack these ideas. Wait. We need to be those who wait on God. Let me say straight away that waiting is not a passive activity, but an active one. If I'm at a restaurant, I want my waiter to be active. The waiter's job is to wait on me. They they need to be attentive to my desires and be ready to act upon them. That's what it means to wait on God. We need to be attentive to God's desires and be ready to act on them. Waiting on God is about actively watching and listening for the activity and voice of God and living in response to it. To do this, we need to make space in our lives to watch and listen for God. And Jim told us a couple of weeks ago that he believes, and I believe, supernatural stuff will happen when we make space for it naturally, in our hearts, in our schedules. That means everything from uh, exploring more space and reflective time as we worship together, to not cramming our lives so full with noise and activity, that we're unable to hear the small voice of God. But let's ask God to show us that what we believe is actually true. Let's ask God to actually show us, not for our entertainment, but for his glory. And having asked him, let's wait for him. Secondly, consecrate, which is basically a way of reiterating um, what Jim was saying before Christmas about devotion. This is, consecration is about being all in for God. A lot of our waiting for God, I believe, needs to be done on our knees. It needs to begin and end with the words, your will and not my will be done. We're to assess what we're giving ourselves to in every area of our lives, in our time, our energy, creativity, our finances, our resources. We need to dedicate all we are and all we have to the person and purposes of our Lord. Wait. Consecrate and celebrate. Now, I don't mean, when I say celebrate, I don't mean have a party, although we should do that too, starting with this Friday. Haggis, neeps, tatties. Nor does celebrate mean we just sort of sweep our troubles under the carpet and ignore whatever suffering we happen to be experiencing. There's an old war song that says, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and, what, smile. (laughs) <laughs> when I say celebrate, I don't mean fake it. I don't, pe- don't mean pretend. What I do mean is that in the midst of troubles, we should still be characterized as a people of blessing. Peter reminds us at the end of this uh, talk that as sons and daughters and inheritors of the covenant with Abraham, we are supposed to bless those with what God has blessed us with. He says, uh, you guys are first in line for the blessing, but it's not supposed to end there. It's supposed to overflow. We should reject the culture of more now and instead celebrate what God has already given us and what is still to come when Jesus returns. I want to take tithing as as an example of how we can celebrate because my view of tithing was completely transformed when I stopped thinking about the 10% I was giving and I started thinking about the 90% I got to keep. I no longer grieve the loss of 10% since it was never mine anyway, it was God's. Instead, I celebrate the fact that God gave me a whopping 90% to do with as I will. It's just a different perspective, a perspective that celebrates blessing where it may be found. And let me say again, this is not an invitation to respond to pain and suffering with a laugh and a smile and pretend that pain isn't painful. You just have to listen to any other sermon I've ever preached to basically know that I I don't think that way. And that any theology that doesn't include uh, the need to grieve and lament is a counterfeit gospel. Jesus actually promises, among other things, that when you do life his way, you will suffer for it. And like him, we should weep. But tears should not be the hopeless tears of the lost, but the hopeful tears of the found. So to sum up, let's be ready for a move of God's power because after all, God is God. He rose Jesus from the dead and we've heard his promises through the prophets and we know them to be true. Let's repent turning from ignorance to face God and experience restored relationship with him, refreshing and revival, eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. And finally, let's wait upon God, consecrate our lives to him, and celebrate his goodness to us. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We long to see you move in power. Not just because it's fun, but because through it, you will be glorified. We want the whole world to see you for who you are. And to that end, we ask for signs and wonders that your spirit may come and do what we cannot do. Would you bridge that internal contradiction that is in each and every one of us that says, I believe. But I'm not sure I believe until I see it. But God, what we do now is We wait for you. We don't make demands upon you. We pray that your will be done. We know that you are faithful. Your promises are true. So we wait, and in waiting, we consecrate our lives to your person and your purposes. Have your way. And we do this because you are good and you are worthy.